But I think it's very fitting that as we talk today about spiritual warfare from Scripture, we remember the physical warfare that uh, people in our country sacrifice so that we can do what we're doing. How many countries are not free to do what we are doing right here? What I want to do on this Memorial Day weekend, I want to um, have us remember uh, our loved ones, family members who have actually paid the price. Now, maybe they served in the military and then they passed away after they, pa- after they left military, or maybe they died in combat in the military. So what I want us to do today is to, if you have a loved one that either served in the military and died in combat and while they're in the military, or they have served and then they uh, passed away since, after they got out, I want you to stand. Number of us. All you who are sitting, the ones that are represented here, the ones that paid for the freedom that we have to be able to do what we're doing. Obviously, the Lord is the ultimate author of freedom. But sometimes he gives us as citizens, as uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guard, and they all space force people uh, to pay the price, to make the sacrifice. And so as we go into our... A message this morning. Let's just bow together in prayer as uh, we pray for uh, these families represented um, today. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you sent your son as the ultimate warrior. He's the one, Lord, who has given us complete victory over the cosmic forces. We praise you for him, Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you hung on the cross, you paid for all sins and you destroyed the works of the devil. And Lord, for the last 200 plus years, almost 250, Lord, we have been in the process. We have been protecting our country through people who have volunteered. Sometimes they've been been conscripted, but for the most part, they have volunteered to serve. And some of them have given the ultimate sacrifice of their life their physical life, so we may have freedom, freedom to worship you without government officials or others coming down to bang our door and, and, um, and to take us away or to kill us here. Lord, thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the protection, ultimately by you, but others have paid the price. And so, Lord, we pray for these who are represented here, the family members. Father, I know that there are many memories that are just flooding their minds right now. And Lord, sometimes there, there are pangs of, of hurt and pangs of, of I miss my, my loved one who served so well. So Lord, I pray that you would bless them today. Pray that you bring comfort and peace to them and go to places in their hearts, Lord, that no one else can go but you. So Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for those who were able to serve. And now, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, as we really make a, a just a a massive overview of Scripture and what the cosmic war is all about. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to take this, to understand it, and then to apply it aright so you may be honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so last week we began to talk about Pentecost, birthday of the church. It was that that day that the Lord poured out upon 120 disciples of Jesus, His Holy Spirit. He filled them, and he gave them the ability to 
flawlessly speak in languages that they had never learned. How would you like to do that? It would be great. And they spoke of these languages to the devout Jews living all over the Roman Empire who had come to celebrate, to observe the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks. And at the end of the day, about 3,000 souls were added to the brand new church of Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Think about it. Can you imagine having a gathering of non-Christians and then all of a sudden 3,000 of them came to know Christ? And since that day, though, the church has been on the march, gobbling up territory that rightly belongs to the Messiah. Jews and Gentiles, by the multiplied billions, have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Christ. And notice I said rescued, on the march. These are terms of conflict, terms of warfare. As I mentioned last week, Pentecost is the birthday of the church, but it also launched the frontal assault of the final campaign against the forces of darkness. This campaign has been going on for quite a while, but it is the final campaign nonetheless. Now, we understand about spiritual warfare from a personal standpoint. How many of us have never experienced spiritual warfare? We've all experienced some of that, some evil forces attacking us. But some of us are also aware of the cosmic battle as well. And we think in the book of Daniel, where the prince of Israel fought against the prince of Persia. And I also reminded us last week of Jesus' understanding of, of cosmic spiritual warfare as well. He understood it very well. This week, I want to make it clear and kind of clear up a couple of things that, that we talked about last week that were kind of uh, weird, because and I know that's confusing because some of you told me. So let me just, uh, just kind of clear some things up a little bit. Hopefully, I can do that. And then I want us to prepare in a little bit to, to give thanks to the one who made it all possible, the Lord Jesus. We're going to take communion in a little while, as you can tell. And it's called Eucharist in some traditions. And the word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. So we're going to give thanks to the ultimate warrior, to the one who, who really made it all possible. And I think it's very fitting that as we, you know, observed our loved ones who paid the price, that today we have a memorial service, as it were, but that the one that we're paying um, remembrance to is not dead, he's alive. He's alive forevermore. Last week, I introduced you to some of the perspective of Dr. Mike Heiser, who has made it his passion to, as he says, Get the Israelite into our head, and we need to do this. Again, by what, he mean, he, what he means by that is that we need to take into account what is obvious to those of us who read Scripture, who really want to know what God's Word has to say, but so few of us seem to apply. That the Bible was written in a different culture. It was written in languages different than English. And they had a completely different worldview than what we have. Now, Heiser's perspective is that we can miss so much in Scripture, and we can even misinterpret, and ultimately, tragically, we can even misapply Scripture because we fail to take into account the worldview of the Scripture writers and to those to whom they wrote. Because again, it was written in a different time, different place. We have to understand it from their point of view. 
Last week we talked about a term called cosmic geography, where spiritual beings called Elohim influence and even now control nations. Remember how I pointed out that Paul said that as we as Christians, we wrestle against these cosmic entities, the principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And cosmic geography is a real thing even today. Unless you think it is a product of a bygone era, let me give you a three-day-old example of what I'm talking about. And so I believe it's on the screen. There it is right there. If you can see this, I hope you can. As you can see, there's some dots up there, some red and blue dots, right? And you know that this, at what's going on with Gaza right now in Israel, there's a big skirmish going on. The people in Gaza, they've been trying to fire rockets. Hamas been trying to fire rockets. And the red dots are where they were fired from. Look where they landed. Those are the blue dots. Notice the line that separates Gaza from Israel. What's going on there? How many rockets have actually been fired into Israel from Gaza? Now, Brother Amir Sarfati, a member of the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, he's a brother in Christ, and he says this, Hamas complained this. He says, and I quote, God is changing the direction of the rockets in midair. This quote was not from this skirmish. It was from another battle, 2014. But it seems like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? Perhaps God indeed is changing the direction of the rockets in midair. But the point here is that even the enemies of Israel understand cosmic geography, that the God of Israel, He's protecting Israel. Now, we could call that God's providence. We could call that Gaza's ineptness. But again, the worldview of many people today is that they believe that cosmic geography is a thing. And that's true. Cosmic geography exists even today. It's real. Because the God of Israel is indeed protecting His people. But why such a big deal over this? Why am I making such a big deal? Because it has everything to do with Messiah's victory and our redemption. We remember how everything began, don't we? In the beginning, God created. He created everything with the Word, and after He created us, He pronounced His whole creation as not just good, but very good. God wanted His imagers, all human beings, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wanted the earth to become like Eden, however that was. But we rebelled, and we learned the ways of rebellion. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that. Sin multiplied along with people. The Lord was grieved, and He was sorry that He made us. And as a judgment on our wickedness, He sent a flood, and everything on earth and in the sky died except for a few select animals and birds and eight of us human beings. God then reissued the command He gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But now He gave it to fallen human beings. Well, 
People multiplied all right, but they didn't fill the earth. They filled a plain, a certain landmass called Shinar. And they began to build a city with a tower that went to heaven. And they disobeyed God's command to go to the end of the earth. And so God took action. And he divided the people into 70 nations listed in the table of nations. And he confused their language so that they could not understand one another. But remember the geography. God put princes, spirit beings called Elohim over the nations. Again, think of the prince of Persia. Think of the prince of Greece. And finally, the nations scattered. But these were rebellious, wicked nations. It took God to directly intervene. But in His mercy, to demonstrate His faithfulness, He still wanted to redeem humanity. We'll enter Genesis 12. What happened in Genesis 12? Well, we know, don't we? God called Abram and Sarai out of the Ur of the Chaldees, ancient Babylon. They were worshiping idols there, including Abraham and Sarah. But what did God want to do? He wanted to create a new nation through which to produce the Messiah. And we know the story, don't we? Abram and Sarai, who were named Abraham and Sarah, they were barren. They couldn't have kids. And because nothing is too hard for God, what did He do? He created a miracle in Sarah's womb. And at age 90, Isaac was born. Ladies, can you imagine bearing your first child at age 90? <laughs> and then from Isaac came Jacob. And then from Jacob came 12. And one of those was Judah. And from the line of Judah came David. And eventually came Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Heiser summed up what the Messiah came to do in a very good way. The three things he wanted that the Messiah was to do is indicated in Scripture. First, the Messiah was going to reverse the curse of death. Death was the thing that all people were and are still subject to. Right about 100% is death rate, isn't it? Everyone is going to die. And again, we've, we heard from Ms. Kathy today about, you know, um, about a loved one passed away in her family. We need to pray for them. In the mind of the Israelites... The Lord of the dead lay claim to every human being because they're fallen in there under the curse. That's in the mind of the Israelites. Second, the Messiah was going to deal with our depravity. Anybody's got a sinful nature? I don't see any hands, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we all have a sinful nature. We know this. One of the reasons why he was going to deal with our depravity was not only because we are born with a bent towards sin, we learn how to sin. We were mentored by a group of spirit beings called the watchers. Now, again, this is the mind of the Israelites. This was, was their worldview, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Third, the Messiah was going to restore divine order to the heavens and the earth. It's pretty obvious when sin entered into the world, what came along with it? Uber chaos with the Messiah was going to make that all right. He was going to straighten it all out. Now, during the days of his ministry, Jesus went around doing good, 
He proclaimed that he was Messiah through what he said and through what he did and through what the evil spirits said and did when Jesus was around. Remember when Jesus confronted a man with many demons in him? When he confronted them, how did the demons respond to him? What did they call him? What do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? The devilish host called him that. And legion, for that was the name of the host, demons of this man, begged Jesus not to torment them. Notice the power that they knew that Jesus had. They not only recognized who he was and is, they also recognized his authority over them. And everywhere Jesus went, part of his ministry was to cast out demons. And he showed his authority over the unseen realm, the wicked ones in the unseen realm, in a big way. And notice that Jesus had the ability also to transfer his authority to his disciples so that they too could have authority over over the wicked, unseen realm. When we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually sent his disciples out on mission trips twice. The first time he sent out a number, and that number was 12, his 12 disciples sent them out. He gave them authority to cast out demons, present the gospel, and those sorts of things. And then a second time, he sent out another group, and that group was 70, 70 disciples he sent out then. He also gave them the authority to cast out demons. Now, the number 70, does that number ring a bell to you? Yes, right. The 70 nations at the table of nations and the Tower of Babel. What was Jesus doing? He was showing symbolically that he had authority over the nations that were under the control of the wicked spirit beings called Elohim. They were leading people astray from Yahweh, the true and living God. And the Lord Jesus was beginning to take back what was rightfully his. The story goes on in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 19. And he says, after the mission trip was over, that the 70 came back, they reported to him, and they said, these returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Again, we have authority over the wicked spirits in the unseen realm. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What an amazing statement that was. But what was he doing? It was with these 70 disciples, symbolically showing he had authority over the earth and over the nations, that he tied their ministry and Satan falling like lightning together. Jesus was beginning to take back what was rightfully his. And toward the end of his ministry, before his crucifixion, he took the disciples to a certain place certain place I wouldn't want to go, but he took them there. It was a place in northern Israel called Caesarea Philippi. This was not a random spot, and Jesus wasn't just out taking a stroll. No, there was a reason why he took the 12 disciples right there. And here's Heiser's summary of this place, and this place is called Bashan. Everybody knew about Bashan. He said this, Bashan was considered the gateway to the realm 
of the dead. Literally, the gates of hell. Caesarea Philippi is located at the foot of Mount Hermon, the place where, in Jewish thinking, the sons of God came to earth in the rebellion described in Genesis chapter 6. You remember Genesis chapter 6? The sons of God had, you know, had, had seen the daughters of men and, and that, that passage right there. In a nutshell, Heiser continues, in Old Testament times, Bashan and Mount Hermon were ground zero for evil cosmic powers. Ground zero. It was there, accessory of Philippi, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And what was Jesus' response? You were Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What was going on here in this dialogue? What was happening here? Where were they standing when Jesus asked the question and Peter gave the response? At the entrance to the gates of hell. The rock referred to was not Peter. It was not his confession of Christ as Messiah, although that's true. But the rock was directly related to where they were standing. They were standing at the entrance to the gates of hell. And Jesus said, on this rock, right here, fellas, is where I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, which keeps things out, a defensive measure will not prevail against the beating that my church will give these gates. So again, what was happening here? In a word, Jesus was throwing down the gauntlet to confront the wicked Elohim of the unseen world. And that was part one. Part two of Jesus' gauntlet casting was a few days later. And he took Peter, James, and John on a high mountain, Mount Hermon. And it was right here where two things happened. Again, in the worldview of the Israelite. First, evil Elohim called the watchers made a pact to corrupt humanity. Again, we don't see that in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. But there is a place where people are aware of it and, and how they got the information. After making that pact, they descended to earth, to the top of Mount Hermon. We read about this in the book of 1 Enoch. Again, a writing that most people in the first century understood. And these watchers were mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. They were called the sons of God in Genesis 6. In 1 Enoch, here was the pact that they made with themselves to corrupt humanity. They, they taught them about warfare, taught them how to abuse drugs. They, they corrupted the institution of marriage. And they taught the daughters of men how to be seductive. All of this and more is what we find in the book of 1 Enoch. And this area was ground zero for evil. Again, this was the worldview of the Jew. Any Jew that you would ask, what's Genesis 6 all about? These were the watchers that came down and corrupted mankind. Something else happened on Mount Hermon. Mark puts it this way in his gospel. And after six days, that is, after six, six days after they were at the entrance to the gates of hell, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. What happened there? 
he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. (laughs) For he did not know what to say because they were scared to death. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Sometimes you just have to be quiet. Just shut your yap, right? Right, Pete? That's what he needed to do. But Jesus' glory was made manifest on this mountain. Nowhere else that we read in the Scriptures, it was here. Why here? Because Jesus threw down the gauntlet the second time in front of the wicked Elohim. And in essence, in Mike Kaiser's words were, here I am. What are you going to do about it? Not too many days later, Jesus would engage in the ultimate battle as Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth. And with his final war cry, it is finished. He destroyed the works of the devil. And so I want you to turn with me to see this in action here, as it were, in chapter 2 of Hebrews, Hebrews 2 and 14 and 15. Now, the writer here is, is talking all the way through his, his writing here about how Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than he issued in a, a covenant that's better than the old covenant, the new one. He's better than, than anything and anybody, and he is worthy of worship. And here's what the writer to the Hebrews says about Jesus and what happened there in, in uh, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death and the fear of death. Messiah mission number one was accomplished. He's reversing the curse of death by his own death. Also, when Jesus cried out, it's finished. Sin debt paid in full. Messiah mission number two was beginning to get accomplished. And I say beginning because every person in the kingdom of God from day one, when we come into the kingdom, we also get entered into a training program. We also get entered into a program where we become like Jesus. We are dealing with our depravity. Through the giving of a spirit, he and we together pursue holiness with increasing measures of spiritual fruit. Now, God is not going to do it all for us, and we know this, right? We have to be involved in our sanctification. Jesus tells us, or God tells us through Paul, he says, we are to work out our salvation. Exercise it with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We are involved in this, but we cannot do it by ourselves. It's a partnership. The Holy Spirit living within us gives us the power, gives us the ability to do this. And that's why I said the dealing with our depravity has begun at the cross. 
and it ends when we get glorified and, and go see the Lord. Again, Paul said it this way. He said it very well when he talked about the glories of us being partakers of the new covenant. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so with our sins forgiven, as God's sons and daughters, we are being transformed. Isn't that a great thing? Can you say hallelujah for that? It's wonderful. We're being transformed. How many people just go around just kind of walking around in a daze? I wish I could change. Guess what God is doing with us? He's changing us to make us more like who? Jesus. It's God's will and it's God's purpose for every one of us who know Christ that we become just like Jesus. Now, that's someone to emulate. That's someone to follow. Now, again, we know that the transformation will not be complete until He comes, till we go see Him, but He will complete it. He will finish the good work. He starts in us. Paul, God through Paul, told us, His friends, and by extension, us, if we're in Christ. Philippians 1.6, he said this, and I am convinced, sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so now, Messiah mission number one and two are finished. They're beginning to get done. Messiah mission number three, the divine restoring of the order of heaven and earth is yet to come. It will happen though. Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension are merely setting the stage for his return. And when he does, he will bring judgment to earth and he will set up his throne. How about you, but uh, I'm kind of tired of the kind of authority that we have nowadays, aren't you? The kind of government that we have. King Jesus will not make any mistakes. There's no corruption with him. And so I want you to turn with me again to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 talks about this very thing. This is one of Jesus' favorite scriptures. He quoted this a couple of times. Psalm 110, talking about himself, talking about the Messiah and what's going to happen when he comes back. Psalm 110. And notice how David inspired, or Holy Spirit inspired David to write this about the Messiah. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, symbol of authority, of rulership. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. It's not very nice, but that's what's going to happen. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. My friends, Christ is coming. Let's prepare. And this is where Pentecost begins. 
All that I just said, last week and this week, now it begins, Pentecost. In Acts 2, Luke writes that Jews from every nation under heaven came to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. House, of course, was not the upper room. It was the temple. The temple was referred to oftentimes as the house or the house of God. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Let me direct your attention to a couple of things here, to one phrase and one word in this passage. The phrase is divided tongues, and the word is bewildered. Now, if you were a Jewish student of God's word, what should automatically come into your mind? Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. You might be thinking, well, you know, I get the divided tongues part, but what about the bewildered part? Well, that word literally means confused. Some of you may be confused now, but the word confused is there, as in the Lord coming down and confusing their language. Hence the name of the incident, the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Confusion. So what is happening here between Genesis 10 and 11 and Acts chapter 2? There's a connection here. Well, the geography list in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, covers about the same territory as, surprise, the Table of Nations. Let me demonstrate. You're going to see a slide here. And on this slide, you can see a bunch of names. You see um, Tubal, Meshach, and all these other names that I can't pronounce. And you also have Tarshish over here, Javan. That's the Table of Nations. Seventy of them are listed. And now look at the next one. Same kind of uh, geography, you think? But look at the names. Starting over here from the, from the eastern side, Parthia, Mede, Elam. This was a list here in Acts chapter 2, right? And going all the way over to Rome. But now there's a difference between that list and the other list. See what's missing between the table nations and this one? Tarshish, Spain, missing. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So what's going on here? What are the marching orders? Let's get this first. What's the marching orders of the church? What did Jesus give us? The Great Commission, right? Two parts. The first one is this. Go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. That's part one, evangelism. And then part two, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, this is so important, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because authority has been given to me, I'm telling you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? To obey, to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now that the Messiah has come and is in the process 
are restoring the creation to where the Lord has always wanted it. What now? His church is to go out and take the spiritual turf from the enemy that rightly belongs to him. This is the Lord's world. These are the Lord's nations, and his people are to take it back. See, the Father has given it to him. Listen to what the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. The Father is speaking to the Son, and he's saying this, Ask of me, Son, and I will make the nations, the nations, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so beginning with the book of Acts, Luke sets out to let the church of Jesus know that she had a good start. And the gospel is to be proclaimed to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What happened in Acts 2? Who were there in Acts 2? Nobody but Jews. The gospel is proclaimed there to the Jews first. Jerusalem first with all the Jews and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, predominantly Gentiles. And as the book of Acts gives one supernatural story after another. We heard a supernatural story today. The church of Jesus Christ is taking back spiritual territory that rightly belongs to him. One story after another, we're seeing that. What is General Jesus doing now? He's interceding for us. He is directing his troops right now. And how is he doing it? He's interceding for the saints according to the will of God. See, we're not only saints, we're soldiers, every one of us if we're in Christ. And what is the will of God? Three things. Number one, all people are to hear the gospel. Somebody gave you the gospel, if you know Christ. Somebody gave you the gospel. We are to tell others. Number two, all of God's people are to become like Jesus. That's discipleship. That is spiritual growth. That's sanctification. And number three, to prepare for the Messiah's return. These three things... Jesus is interceding on our behalf to the Father for these things, among many others. In a nutshell, in Jesus, we proclaim His victory over death. That's part of the gospel. He died, He rose again. That's mission number one that He accomplished. In Jesus, there is true transformation, dealing with our depravity. And that's mission for the Messiah number two. And His soon return to restore the divine order. That's mission of the Messiah number three. We proclaim these things. Now, you know, Paul was very familiar with the table of nations, wasn't he? He was a master at Scripture, Old Testament. He knew that when Luke listed the nations in Acts, there was a nation missing. We saw that. That nation was Tarshish. That nation was Spain. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, became passionate about visiting Spain. Did you catch it in your reading? Did you see it? Several times he talked about this. He mentioned it several times. When he wrote Romans, for example, he wrote to his friends in Rome, and he said this to his brothers and sisters there of his commitment to get to Spain. In Romans 15, 24, he says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, Tarshish, and be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. And he was so excited about Spain, four verses later, he said it again. 
When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what was been collected. Again, that was that offering for the poor saints in, in Judea. After that happens, I will leave for where? Spain by way of you. So why Spain? Why Tarshish? Because for Paul, that was the end of the known world. He was convinced that the Lord had commissioned him to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And church tradition tells us some interesting things. That the end of the book of Acts was not the end of Paul's life. It was not the end of his ministry. It wasn't the end, even the end of his writing ministry. See, after he spent two years under house arrest in Rome, apparently he got released. Apparently he didn't have to stand before Nero. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Because Nero probably would have had his head at that point. Charges probably were dropped. And so when he was released, church tradition tells us that he did go to Spain, fulfilling his mission of giving the gospel there. And in the midst of his ministry to Spain, Paul continued his writing ministry. And during this time, he wrote 1 Timothy. He also wrote Titus. It's right there in the Bible. And sometime after he established a church in Spain, he was arrested again. He was taken back to Rome. He was put into the Mamertine prison, death row in Rome. And it was there he wrote his last letter he would ever write. And then he got a warm home going when, when the guard chopped off his head. And down through the centuries, as his army, the church of Jesus Christ has been on the march, taking back turf that rightly belongs to the king. And as his bride, preparing to meet her groom, the church has been endeavoring to live only with her eyes upon him. As a farmer, the church has been planting the imperishable seed of the gospel through the living and abiding word of God. So soldiers, members of the bride, and farmers work in the field of souls Every one of us who really are in the kingdom of God are vitally important. Whether you've been a Christian for one day, whether you're eight years old in the Lord, whether you're eight years old, period. If you're a Christian, you're vitally needed, vitally important. See, God, through Luke, gave us the paradigm. See, when the Jews heard the gospel, many of them stayed around Jerusalem, but the vast majority of them left. They went back home. They went back home to their pagan world. They went back home to their spheres of influence. But now they were forever changed. They were beginning to follow Jesus. And like a fragrance of life to life, or a fragrance stench of death to death, depending on how those who would hear would respond, Messianic Jews now took the gospel to the Gentiles in their world, in their spheres of influence. Just like Paul said in in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or the Gentile. But you know, the strategy has never changed. Our priority is to live out the truth in the ways I just mentioned. As soldiers in his military, as a betrothed bride waiting for her groom, as a hardworking farmer tending the spiritual field, and we do that in the three ways that we have control over. 
We have control over what we choose to think about. We have control over what we say. And we have control over what we do. See, every thought that we choose to think about serves to either take from the enemy turf that is rightly the Lord's or the enemy advances. There is no middle ground. The same way with every word that we speak, the same way with, the, with every action that we take, again, no middle ground. Every thought, every word, every action also shows our loyalty or disloyalty to our bridegroom. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But now the next statement the very next statement is stabbing truth. See, we can say that we love our bridegroom. How many of us would not say, I don't love Jesus? We all say that we do, don't we? But verse 24 tells on us if we are honest. And here's what he says. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. See, if we're honest, we can tell right away if we really love Jesus. How do we do that? If we are actively right now keeping his words. Another word for obedience. Now, of course, obedience with proper motive. Every thought, every word, every action also calls to mind the function of a farmer. See, with all of us, we're always sowing seed. Every thought we choose to think about, it's a seed. Every word that we speak, it's a seed. Every action that we take, it's a seed. If the word, thought, or action is righteous, what will we be doing to our lives? We'll be sowing seeds of righteousness. And over time, a crop of righteousness will develop in our life. It's not going to appear right away. You know, seeds take time to grow, right? But rest assured that the law of sowing and reaping is a spiritual law. It's in Scripture. Here's what it says in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You get the picture. Messiah Jesus has won the victory. He has dispatched his soldiers to war, his bride to make herself ready for his return, and his farmers to till the field till he comes again. And we can rejoice because King Jesus has won the victory. When he fully implements his agenda, all will be made right in heaven and on earth. As his people, we will enjoy the fruits of the rewards as we've engaged in the battle. As we faithfully wait for our bridegroom, as we work the field of souls, may the Lord by his spirit Comfort us, encourage us, equip us to continue on. One day, he will be here. The king of kings is our king. The bridegroom is the lover of our souls. The true owner of the field will send his faithful Elohim to reap his harvest. And one day, we will all stand before him, every one of us, to give an account. May we hear the words. May we live our lives in such a way that we will hear words from our judge on that day. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Today we're going to observe communion. I know we're going a little long. But I trust that what you've heard today is something that you could take and apply to your life. We're going to have communion. And we're going to remember the extent that our Lord Jesus went to to secure the victory. He's exalted. He paid for our sin with his own life. In a moment, we're going to partake of the elements of the bread and the cup to help us remember what he did for us. But it was my sin. It was your sin that put him on that cross. But he went willingly. He laid down his life of his own accord. His love for us and his hatred for sin are the reasons he chose to go to the cross in obedience to the Father's will. 